Welcome back, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, first-time listeners, long-time listeners, and everybody in between. I'm your favorite podcast host, Jimmy Lincoln. This is your favorite podcast, or if it's not your favorite, it's moving up the list, damn it, Journeys into Whiteness. And if you're a long-time listener, you already know this spiel or some version of it, but if you're a first-time listener... The goal of this podcast, the purpose of this podcast, the reason for existing of this podcast is for me, as a middle-aged white man, to explore the concept of whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, and how notions of whiteness not only evolve, but are transmitted from one generation to another or even within, quote unquote, white society and culture. Or to put it more simply, the purpose of this podcast is for me as a white man to explore how race, racism and everything connected to these concepts has affected my life and those around me. As you all know. We're about to find out season one dealt with stories from my childhood, my elementary school years, season two, of which this is the halfway point. Hard to freaking believe we're already halfway through season two. Season two deals with my adolescent years, my early teenage years. So season two is some juicy shit, man. Middle school, high school, probably early high school. I've got so much going on, and I don't mean like in a busy way, but just with this topic as a teenager and as a young man that I'm suspecting that it's going to spill into season three. And in season two already, we've already explored, we took a little detour, not surprisingly for anyone who's heard this podcast before, took a detour into the normalization of whiteness and white characters in a fictional setting, specifically as it related to Santa Claus. We also explored dress codes and how whiteness is normalized and foregrounded and taken for granted often in dress codes and in their enforcement. That was a fun episode, man. I hadn't realized how many memories were going to bubble to the surface until I started planning that episode and and presenting and recording that episode. We also looked at me being an obnoxious ne'er-do-well as a middle schooler, a mischievous scamp who could only be described with those words because I was a white male, and how all of the the, the shoplifting and, and throwing things at cars was basically just me getting into some mischief because I was white as opposed to me risking my life if I had been a black 12, 13, 14-year-old throwing crab apples at moving vehicles. And then episode four, we looked at my really shameful objectification, sexualization, racialization of a female classmate's body. And so here we are, episode five. And episode five is going to carry me into my freshman year in high school. So 14, 15, I think I was 14. And we're going to focus on some books. And for anyone who listened to episode one and heard me go into hopefully not excruciating, but maybe painstaking detail about my grandfather's history textbook, you know, I like talking about books. And for anyone who knows me in general, they know I love books and ideas and the questions that books asks or ask, or at least good books ask. Like shitty books tell you things, good books, good books ask you things. And this is actually part one of a two-part little series about myself as a 14, 15-year-old teenager and my relationship to Malcolm X. So episode five, which we're currently on, and then episode six are both going to delve into this relationship and how it had a lot of cross currents with other things going on in my life, especially with the concept of whiteness and white privilege. And so Malcolm, as a symbol, 
and a political figure, and as a human being, plays a big role in both these episodes, but especially in this episode, in episode five, his autobiography, written with, with Alex Haley, plays an enormous role. So we're going to get to that. But before I get to Malcolm's autobiography, and before I get to my own, let's call it, I don't know if this is the best word, it's not necessarily inaccurate, but let's call it appropriation of of symbols of blackness relating to Malcolm. Before I get to that, we need to back up a little bit further in my own personal growth and talk about one of my all-time favorite books. Still to this day, one of my all-time favorite books. And the reason we need to back up is because I believe, I don't know for a fact, and this is where memory gets fun, right? Like you just have all these ideas and you have these images and you have these feelings in your head, but you don't necessarily have a linear story. But I'm 80 to 90% certain that this book I'm about to talk about served as a bit of a gateway drug for Malcolm X's autobiography or a springboard to get me into Malcolm X's autobiography. This book also will provide the existence of this book in my household growing up. will provide a bit of insight for any of my listeners who are wondering how the fuck a middle-class white boy growing up in a small city in the South. Shout out to my hometown of Harrisonburg. All my longtime listeners know Harrisonburg well. It comes up in almost all these stories. But how did a middle-class white kid growing up in a small city, large town in the South, have any kind of racial, racial consciousness? And I'm not even, you know, I don't like that fucking word woke. I hate that word. And I don't want to act like I've figured something out that others around me haven't because it, by and large, I don't think I have other than maybe I figured out the benefit of being honest or, or attempting to be honest with, with myself and with my experiences. But the existence of this book I'm about to talk about, I think will clue in some of my readers as to my own background and how there are little seeds planted in my background even before I was born that helped lead me down the path to where in 2020 and 2021, I could be hosting a podcast entitled Journeys into Whiteness. So without further ado, because I know y'all are wondering what book it is, although if you if you know your authors and you know your late 20th century history, you might already have guessed what book it is because I gave you, a, gave you a hint a second ago. Easily one of my all-time favorite books, still to this day. Maybe on my Mount Rushmore of books. A true American story in every sense of the word. The book I'm referencing is Roots. And I'm guessing all of my audience, or the vast majority of my audience, you're familiar with Roots, either as just kind of a cultural touchstone the miniseries Roots that played on network television in the late 70s, I believe on CBS, was was definitely a true water cooler show. I've only seen snippets of the miniseries, by the way, or maybe you've been exposed to the book. But at the very least, I'm guessing most of y'all are familiar with the book and its existence and probably familiar with the story. But if you're not real quick, and I know you're rolling your eyes because nothing's real quick with me, but I promise this is Roots tells the story of Alex Haley's family. From their, not beginning, but their existence in West Africa in the, I want to say 17th century, maybe early 18th century. So 1600s, late 1600s, early 1700s, his his family in the Gambia, which is in the Niger River Delta of West Africa. And how an ancestor of his, and the book is meticulously researched, how an ancestor of Haley's is, is kidnapped enslaved, brought to North America across the Middle Passage. And what Mr. Haley does is trace the journey of not only this single enslaved individual, Kunta Kinte, a very famous name in American culture and American history, but traces that man's lineage all the way up into up until the 1960s, early 70s in Chicago. A fascinating, fascinating, well-written epic of an American family. 
And I read this book sometime around eighth or ninth grade and was blown away, loved it. Within 10 pages, loved it. Like one of those books, right? Like books don't always do that. Even good books sometimes takes a little while to get into them, but not Roots. No, no, no. From Jump Street, I was loving this book. And I'm not alone. It's an incredibly, incredibly popular book and miniseries. Shout out LeVar Burton, who plays Kunta Kinte in the miniseries. Right, reading Rainbow, man, wasn't that the shit? We might have to do an episode on Reading Rainbow, although I'm not sure how it would fit within our theme, but, you know, I can make it work. So Red Roots is a 13 or 14-year-old. And you might be asking, well, how the fuck did a 13 or 14-year-old white kid growing up in small town, sorry, small city, large town, that's what I like to call it. Most people would probably just call it small town Virginia. How did you end up with a copy of Roots in your hand? And the answer is simple. It was on the bookshelf of my house. My parents owned a copy of the book. My dad, probably. My dad was a tried and true, died in the wool from as long as I've ever known him until I guarantee you his last breath, of the truest definition of a bibliophile. My dad adored books and read them as if they were his oxygen. And we had in my house... And it didn't matter what house I was in because we lived in a, you know, different, you know, an apartment and then a small house. But we had one thing that was ubiquitous in these, any home I was living in growing up was this bookshelf that was taller than me. So it had to be at least, and I mean taller than I am now. So like at least seven feet tall, maybe eight feet tall, just an enormous book bookshelf, probably three or four feet across. And it was filled with all kinds of things, you know, family photos, cookbooks, whatnot, but also just filled with an amazing collection of books. And I don't know if I ever, I don't, actually I do know, I didn't ever tell my father before he passed away how important those books were to me because they were, they were his books without going into all my family details. My mom reads a ton. She read a ton, but they weren't mostly her books, although there were some. That were hers. Shout out Mary Higgins Clark books. If you know those books, those those things slap, by the way. Those are good-ass mystery books. She loved those and had those, and I read those. But my father had just a vast array of history books, mostly history books, and roots. Although, I don't know how you would categorize it. It's not necessarily, it's not historical fiction. It's novelistic nonfiction was one of those books. But other books, too, like Leon Trotsky's autobiography. I read that in, in eighth or ninth grade. Didn't understand half of it. But like the fact that I was exposed to those books, I think those books shaped me in ways that I had no idea I was being shaped at the time. And so I wish I'll probably forever regret not thanking my dad just for having those books in my home. Not to mention, not to nerd out on you all, there's so much research about the importance of books in a home, books of any topic in any genre. And so my, this personal story and how they, how they shape us as learners and how they shape us as students and how they shape us as humans. So this story reminds me of that as well. But back to the, the main path we're traveling in this episode. So I picked up Roots, bored, didn't have any conscious kind of context from which to approach it other than whatever I had learned about slavery and the enslavement of Africans and African-Americans throughout elementary school, middle school, but loved it. Read that book. I've read it multiple times since. I probably still have that copy of it somewhere. I really hope I do. And I think the fact that Alex Haley wrote that book made me associate him with super awesome dope books. And so that not that long afterwards, within a year or two afterwards, when I'm exposed to Malcolm X's autobiography that he wrote or was written with the assistance of Alex Haley, 
I already had kind of a key to that doorway, right? I already recognized his name, Haley's name, and I said, ooh, I know he wrote Roots, and I know Roots is awesome. And I know enough about Malcolm to know that he's kind of controversial, or at least he's presented as being controversial, or at least white people think of him as controversial. Let me check this book out. But I need to talk about Roots, too, for a second, and I need to be really honest. And I didn't think about this at the time. I didn't think about this in my 20s. I didn't think about this probably much in my 30s. It's only in the last few years I've I've thought of this. And it shapes how I think about all American history. And as someone who has multiple degrees in American history, and as someone who has taught American history for almost two decades now, I think it's really important for myself and for my, my students and even my own children who I'm raising that I'm really honest about this. Part of me wonders... If the appeal of roots and the appeal of so many other areas of American history that I've studied wasn't the fact that it was so squarely focused on the enslavement of Africans and people of African descent. In other words, did this book, was I ripe For viewing people, viewing my black brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, I mean, in a very broad sense, brothers and sisters as humans, was I ripe to view them in a very narrow set of circumstances as enslaved people, or as I would have said back then, as slaves, which for anyone who's interested in linguistics and the power of words, think about the difference of those two words, slave versus enslaved person. And so I... I can't help but wonder, and you all know me, I don't have a lot of answers on this podcast. I'm trying to do the good book thing and ask questions. I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons that Roots appealed to me so much, and maybe even one of the reasons that African-American studies have appealed to me so much, and I hope this isn't the case, but I need to ask the question, is it because so often the stories of black people, not just in Roots, but that I encountered throughout my studies of American history, were about stories of black enslavement. And did somehow those stories, as humane and complex and deep as they were, did they somehow reinforce stereotypes that I had in my head? Stereotypes about the proper way of the world. Stereotypes about the fact that slavery or enslavement is the proper role for Africans and people of African descent. And I do know as I get older, I've tried to become more aware of the fact and more vocal about this fact that African history and African-American history is so much more than the history of transatlantic slavery, so much more than the enslavement of four and a half million people of African descent by the time of the Civil War in the U.S. And it's not to say that, and this is a tricky kind of intellectual exercise I'm on, right? Because I'm not in any way trying to discount the importance of the enslavement of millions of human beings to American history and the white supremacy that is created on the coattails of the beginnings of that enslavement to justify and support that system of slavery. Those stories, the enslavement of millions of Africans and people of African descent are central to American history, but they're not necessarily central to the history of Africans and African-Americans. Do you see the difference? Like you can't tell American history without devoting a lot of time to study the enslavement of others and the white supremacy created to justify that enslavement. But I think we often make the, the mistake, and I'm by we, I mean, y'all should know by now, when I use that royal we, I'm talking, talking to my white listeners. We often make the mistake of seeing the African-American experience only through the lens of the enslavement of millions of people. And not only is that just not accurate historically, I think if we're not careful, if that's the only lens we're looking at, then what we end up doing, as well-intentioned as we may be, we end up inadvertently 
turning Africans and people of African descent into objects, into things, not into subjects, not into real life complex people, but into things, things that are acted upon instead of people with agency. There were tens of thousands of free African-Americans or free people of African descent in the U.S. from the 1700s on, even in the South, living certainly precarious existences in the South, depending on what state you were in and what time we're talking about. But those stories alone, let alone the stories that that predate the, the existence of transatlantic slavery, the stories of the kingdoms of Ghana and Mali and Songhai and the vast trading empires in East Africa that grow up around the city of Great Zimbabwe or the people of, of Kush and the Egyptians themselves. Like the stories of, of Africans and African-Americans are so, so much more vast than the story of enslavement. But I can't help but wonder if Roots didn't appeal to me so much because it fit my stereotypical vision of what I thought was the role for all people of African descent. And it certainly appealed, I can tell you now, and Malcolm's autobiography did this too. And once again, this is something else that at the time I thought was noble, but the older I get, the more complex and the more problematic I see this. Both of the books, Roots and then Malcolm's autobiography, which I haven't even started talking about, appealed to my sense of white guilt. And I felt bad for the people in these books. I felt bad for Haley and his ancestors. And on the surface, feeling bad for someone is necessarily a bad thing, right? Like that's a very human emotion to feel sympathetic. I don't know if I ever felt empathetic or even tried to. But also, there's that danger that if all you feel towards a group of people or towards an individual family is you feel sorry for them, there's the danger of that those feelings kind of morphing into pity. And there's also the danger that white guilt, if I don't really investigate it and interrogate it, and if I'm not really honest about it, white guilt still centers me as a white man in this story and still provides a very narrow role for Africans and people of African descent to play the role of victims because white guilt also allows me if I'm not really, really, really careful with how I approach it, white guilt also allows me to play this other role of white savior. If I feel guilty about the existence of slavery and its centrality to American history, then it's very logical that my next step is, what can I do to fix this? And notice that sentence, right? What can I do? I'm putting myself now at the center of the story. And I'm not like, I get it. It's complicated. And I know some of y'all are listening and you're like, damn, man, I'm not even allowed to feel bad about slavery. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying white guilt automatically in any way can lead you to this problematic area that I've described. But I do know you got to be careful with it, white folks. I do know it's certainly not enough by and large by itself. And I do know it's an emotion that often becomes self-referential. And we see this in, in movies and books all the time where, where the guilt and the sadness and the shame, but also the redemption of white people becomes central, even in stories that are quote unquote supposed to be focusing on black people and black lives. It's the the quote-unquote driving Miss Daisy problem. Ostensibly a story about a black man, but in reality, it's really about a white character and her emotions and how she overcomes the shame and her redemption. And the black character, Morgan Freeman's character, I believe his name is Hoke in Driving Miss Daisy, becomes an object, becomes a flat character. He's just one thing. 
he's just acted upon. See the same thing in To Kill a Mockingbird. See the same thing in Huckleberry Finn. Books, which, by the way, I like. But so I wonder if Roots didn't appeal to me in some way on that level. Didn't appeal to my sense of white guilt, but then also appeal to my sense of centrality, white centrality. And didn't also reinforce my stereotypical notions of what the African and African-American experience was. And I don't know, but I have got to ask those questions of myself every time I think of that book. So, Roots led me, I believe, to Malcolm X's autobiography. And I can't recall, but I think Malcolm's autobiography was also another book on my father's bookshelf, on my parents' bookshelf. On this eight-foot-tall bookshelf that always leaned slightly forward because it was so weighed down with books. Probably unsafe as hell. No, definitely unsafe as hell. Because by the time I remember, my mom has moved out of that house in the last few years, and I remember like taking the books off that shelf and, and taking that shelf down, realizing how it's amazing that thing didn't collapse upon me or one of my brothers. That would have been a dense, complex metaphor. Not to mention a fucking tragic moment, but <laughs> thankfully, it never happened. So I don't know where I got the actual copy of Malcolm's autobiography that he wrote with, with Alex Haley's assistance. I think it was on that bookshelf. But I do know why I started reading Malcolm X's autobiography. And I have to take a few minutes, a few moments. This person would not like this, by the way, at all, I don't think. This person is, is, is entirely too humble to enjoy what's going to come, but she deserves it. And, and give a and and give you a brief background on how I started reading Malcolm's autobiography. I told you that Alex Haley kind of gave me the springboard and made me able to approach Malcolm's autobiography. But the details about how I ended up reading it go back to my freshman English teacher, a woman named Tracy Sonnefeld. And I know a lot of my listeners are people I know personally, and so you all know Mrs. Sonnefeld. Those of you who do, do not know her, I I'm going to tell you this because you all know someone like her because we've all had one of these people in our lives. She is one of those teachers that saved my life. Quite literally saved me as a human being. And I've been so blessed because I've had multiple. And she is easily at the top of the list of one of those teachers who saved my life because she saw me for me. She saw me as a person. And she understood me and she loved me like just one of those teachers that that I could live to be 203 and never find the right words to explain what she did for me as a young 14 year old boy. And then I was lucky enough to have her throughout my high school career as an elective teacher in her debate classes. But it was in her freshman English class that she assigned us such a badass assignment, by the way, such a badass assignment. She assigned us all. We had to read a banned book. A book that had been pulled from the shelves of either a public library or a public school curriculum somewhere in the U.S. in the last decade or two. And by the way, if anyone's interested in the, this phenomenon of banning books, look into it. It'll infuriate the hell out of you. Not only that it occurs, but the books that end up getting banned are some of the most important books, in my opinion, in 19th and 20th century American literature. And I realize the concept of a canon is problematic, so I'm not saying they're canonical because I don't know if I even believe in that concept. They're just fucking awesome books, or at least important books, I should say. So that was the assignment. And by this time, as a freshman in high school, I'd already read Roots, and I was, I was starting to be drawn towards African-American history and African-American culture. If I'm being kind, I'm saying some of that has to do with my interest from a historical standpoint, if I'm being kind to myself. If I'm being honest, my historical interest in African-American history was probably an outgrowth of my desire as a teenager to be cool as fuck and my perception that black and blackness and black culture equaled cool. And we're going to spend a later episode on that because that's just so much to digest and untangle my understandings of how blackness equated to coolness as a teenager. I'm going to try as best I can. It's, it's, it's not something that's easy 
for me to even articulate. But I think that is one reason I was drawn to Malcolm's autobiography. But it started off with Miss Sonnefeld giving us this long list of books that have been banned somewhere in the U.S. in the last 20 years or so. And Malcolm's autobiography wasn't actually on this list. But the biography of Nat Turner was. And I'm not going to go into a lot about Nat Turner, not because he's not awesome, but because he is awesome. And the rest of this episode would turn into a discourse on Nat Turner. But dear listeners, please, please research Nat Turner. And I need somebody, some historian, to do him justice and write him a proper biography at some point. Because I don't think there's one out there that I'm aware of. But Because the one written was written almost contemporaneously. It was written while it was started to be written anyway while he was alive. It was written by a white lawyer in Virginia who's not necessarily sympathetic to that. And so it was written in the 1830s. But Nat Turner, for those who might not know him, Google him. He is a true American hero. Just badass, enslaved human being who planned and led and helped carry out an ultimately unsuccessful but still incredibly amazing rebellion of enslaved people in South Central Virginia in 1831. Please read up on Nat Turner. And read up on multiple sources because there's a lot of misinformation about Nat Turner. Anyway, the biography of Nat Turner was on this list of banned books that Mrs. Sonnefeld had given to us and asked us to choose a book from it. And we were going to be asked to read this book and do things, not something as, as simplistic as a book report. I don't remember her ever assigning something quite like that to us, but there was probably some kind of presentation involved in it. And so I picked that because I knew enough to know who Nat Turner was. And as I just mentioned, I was, was starting to be drawn to African-American culture and African-American history. Turns out that book is not very well written. And for my 14-year-old self, who was not nearly as smart as he'd like to think he was, but was bright, but not, not brilliant, still, still a long way from brilliant, try to be bright, I couldn't get into that book. I just couldn't. And I maybe made it 10 pages in that book and was like, I'm not going to be able to finish this. There's just no way. I was confused. I was lost. I was bored more, probably worse than all. Right. There's nothing worse than being bored when you read a book. Which, by the way, schools do, if they're not careful, a horrible job of teaching literature because we're so obsessed still to this day with teaching specific types of books. We're still so obsessed, too many teachers with this canon that we inadvertently teach kids that books are boring. And nothing's further from the truth. Right. My bibliophile listening, you know that the best book is just the right book is fucking amazing and not boring at all. But schools too often feel like they have to teach certain types of books and force them down the throats of children. And then they wonder why children grow up later not liking reading. Just like you wouldn't like food if someone told, like, fed you plain oatmeal your whole life. You wouldn't associate food with the awesomeness, the panoply of all the great flavors and dishes out there if all you had ever been given was plain white oatmeal. But we do it with books all the time. But I digress. Biography of Nat Turner. Could not, couldn't do it. So I went to Mrs. Sonnefeld early in the project. You know, she had given us a few class periods, probably a couple of weeks to work on this. And I, you know, I, I said, I need to pick a new book. And I already had one in mind. I had already picked up Malcolm's autobiography. So I, I, I'm almost positive it had to have been on my father's bookshelf. Pick up Malcolm, Malcolm's autobiography. Ask her if I can read this, even though I realized it wasn't on the band list that she had given us. But I told her, I remember having this conversation with her. I said, I feel like if it hasn't been banned, it probably has been somewhere. We don't know about it or it will be at some point. And to her, to her immense credit, among the millions of other things she did for me as a student and as a person, she didn't bat an eye. She said, sure, read it. Because she realized at the end of the day, like any good English teacher, like any good teacher reading, kids bring you books and they're excited about reading them. The last thing you should ever say is, nah, don't read that. 
So she said, go ahead, read it, do your project on it. Read it, devoured it, loved it, did my project, probably got an okay grade, probably rushed through it, did it, but rushed through it, maybe didn't quite do my best. But that's not where this story is headed. And I have reread Malcolm's autobiography since then. And once again, I have to tell you, dear listener, that there's some problematic aspects in terms of how I approach Malcolm's autobiography. And they're almost identical to, I think, how the way Roots worked on me. Because my favorite parts of Malcolm's autobiography are, to this day, the parts before he converts to to the religion of Islam, before he becomes a Muslim, are the parts when he's a hustler, a small-time gangster in New York and in Detroit, running numbers, breaking into houses. In Boston, New York, and Detroit, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't read Malcolm's autobiography in a long time. If you are interested in learning more about Malcolm, which you should be easily one of the most fascinating figures of American history, you should definitely read his autobiography, but you should also read a more recent biography of him written by an, an incredible historian. I believe he taught at Columbia, a man named Manny Marable, wrote a biography of Malcolm X that came out, I want to say... 10 years ago, maybe an amazing book. And it, and it even references the autobiography in some really fascinating, thoughtful and insightful ways. So pick that up to really well-written, really page turning type book, really just dynamically paints a picture of who Malcolm was, not just as a leader and as a symbol and as a voice for many people who were voiceless, but also as a human and as a man, as a father, as a husband. But I, I digress once again. But I, I worry and I wonder if part of the reason Malcolm's autobiography didn't appeal to me so much was once again because it could fit neatly into a box. And in this case, not the story of enslavement, although there are echoes of that. But the story of civil rights. And once again, I, I wonder if certain stereotypical understandings that I had of the proper role of African-Americans, in this case, either either criminals like Malcolm is in the earlier part of the book, prisoners like Malcolm is about halfway through the book, or civil rights activists like Malcolm is for the last third of the book. Either way, I wonder if those weren't some roles, along with enslaved person, that I had already predetermined were the most appropriate roles for African-Americans. That's a question I have to ask myself. And I don't know the answer. And I don't know if I ever will get to an answer. But I have to continue to ask myself that question, not only about Malcolm's autobiography, but about any other African-American history or stories I come across. (coughs) Excuse me. Because by asking the question, I think it's going to make me more aware and in tune to why I'm consuming this piece of art, this piece of culture, this story, this music, this movie. And so I think white listeners, we need to ask ourselves those questions frequently. But that's not where the story ends with Malcolm's autobiography. I was reading his autobiography. And this is why I'm not sure if I got the copy I read from my dad's bookshelf or somewhere else. At about the same time. that the Spike Lee movie based on the autobiography was coming out in theaters. Denzel stars in the movie, like always kills it. Just kills it in a good way. I mean, for my older listeners, he, he does a really good job in that movie. And the movie's not nearly as good as the book because so much of the book is internal. And so much of the book is devoted to things that are hard to depict in an interesting way on a movie screen, but the movie's really good. And so what Spike's movie did, though, because Alex Haley and Malcolm published Malcolm's autobiography in the late 60s, I believe, maybe early 70s after Malcolm had been assassinated, had been murdered. But I believe it came out even earlier. But Spike's movie brought Malcolm as a symbol, 
maybe not as a fully formed person, but at least as a symbol, had brought Malcolm back into the public consciousness. And so, at Christmas, and this is all happening around the same time, I'd already read Malcolm's autobiography, I'd read Roots before that, and at Christmas of that year, or some subsequent but near year, I received a Malcolm X bean from my very liberal aunt who lived in New York City. And I thought it was the best gift ever. Thought it was so fucking awesome. Just loved this beanie. And it was so powerful and simple. Black with the silver X on it. Everybody knew immediately that it represented Malcolm and Malcolm X and all he stood for. Which, by the way, if you do even a cursory dive into Malcolm X, you'll realize that what he stands for is never nearly as simplistic as you might want to think it is. For any of my amateur historians out there. Complex, ever-evolving dude. Just one of the things that makes him so amazing as a public figure. But I loved it. It appealed to everything I've already talked about, right? It appealed to my sense of black as being cool. It appealed to my burgeoning love of African-American history. It appealed to my, my white guilt, which we've talked about how, you know, the dangers of white guilt, but it certainly appealed to that. And so I wore that motherfucker. I got it at Christmas. I bet I didn't take it off till April. And would you believe, and dear listener, you probably would, because many of you are my age and many of you are humans and know how this works. Remember, small city, big town, Virginia. This is like 1993. Would you believe the backlash that I received from my peers for wearing this Malcolm X beanie? And that just made me want to wear it more, right? Like nothing's cooler than shit that, that makes people mad and gets a rise out of them. But the backlash came from a very specific demographic. And it wasn't my black peers, spoiler alert. It was white peers. And it wasn't the Confederate flag waving, what I would have called at the time, redneck peers. It wasn't from my honky-tonk peers. Although I'm sure they maybe didn't like it. But the most vehement, most angry bullying, because I was a freshman in high school, so many of these people who were, who were most forthright about their distaste for this beanie made it very clear to me in not-so-nice terms frequently. The most angry, vehement denunciations of me wearing this beanie were from white kids who had a lot of black friends or black acquaintances and who seemed... At least I perceived them to be at the time to love black culture as much as I was starting to love black culture, who wore starter jackets and listened to rap music and spoke in black vernacular slang. People, juniors and seniors, white guys that I hope to maybe kind of grow up and be like one day. They were the most upset by me wearing Malcolm's beanie. Called it reverse racism. Said I wasn't allowed to wear it. Told me to take it the fuck off. Probably pulled it off and threw it on the ground a few times. I got mildly bullied as a freshman. I was little, had a loud mouth. Everyone who's listening knows <laughs> both of those to be true, especially the latter. And for years, it confounded me. I'm not surprised. I wasn't surprised even then that in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the early 1990s, that there were white people who were upset with what Malcolm stood for, or more accurately, what they thought Malcolm stood for, and white people who were upset at any symbols they associated with Malcolm and were doubly upset at any white person celebrating Malcolm and what they thought he stood for. But I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out why other this specific subset of white people would be so upset. And I still, to this day... Don't really have a good idea. But I think I have a few hypotheses. I think part of what makes Malcolm so frustrating 
for so many white people and even for these so-called wannabe cool white kids who hung out with other with other black kids is that they could not and this tells you my theory has to do with with how deeply rooted white supremacy is in this country and i think that one reason malcolm and symbols associated with malcolm made these black white teenagers sorry white teenagers so upset and makes so many white people upset is that they can't envision a world where white supremacy isn't the norm even if they love black culture maybe especially if they like black black culture right because there's nothing white people and i myself included love to do more than kind of dip our toes into the black experience and then pull back to enjoy black culture but only up to a certain point where it's not risky to us and black people are like Motherfucker, this is not a game. This is not something we do on the weekend. Being black is just who we are. Not to mention that our understandings of black culture as white people, I know mine back then, but even even as an adult are often, once again, very narrowly defined in this box. So I've mentioned the role of enslaved person being allowed, the role of criminal, gangster, the role of prisoner, the role of civil rights activist, and you could add rapper and athlete. But that's about it, right? That most white people, even quote-unquote woke white people, that's about the list for roles that we're comfortable with white people taking, I mean, with black people taking. And so I think even to these, or especially to these white teenagers that hated me wearing the beanie, anything that threatened the established order of things, and the established order is white supremacy first and foremost, anything that threatened that made them nervous because it was viewed as just uncomfortable and incomprehensible, not just uncomfortable, incomprehensible, did not seem like natural. I think that could be part of it. And then I have a second hypothesis. And it also ties into how deeply entrenched white supremacy is in our culture and in our collective ethos. I think that Malcolm, and symbols of black power in general, whether they be the Black Panther Party for self-defense from the civil rights era or the student nonviolent coordinating committee from the same era or the Southern Leadership Conference from the same era, Southern Christian Leadership Conference from the same era, or much of what Martin did when he was alive, which is why now that we celebrate Martin, white folks take away all the radical, powerful stuff of Martin and just focus on those parts of Malcolm that that don't really challenge us. But I think white people have a trouble and almost incomprehension of how to imagine white power. Sorry, how to imagine black power. Look, that's how deeply white supremacy is entrenched. How to imagine black power without it being anti-white. Because to them, rightfully, unfortunately, for all of us who have lived in this country for for centuries, white power has always been defined as white supremacy and has always been anti-black and anything non-white. And so for many white people, including these white teenagers in the early 90s who were so upset that I was wearing the Malcolm Beanie, black power doesn't mean black equality, doesn't mean black justice, doesn't mean black lives matter. Black power meant anti-whiteness. Not anti-white supremacy. That nuance, that distinction was lost on them. And so once again, because I saw it all throughout the summer of 2020, right? When I would have conversations with either students or people my age or even older about why they're opposed to the Black Lives Matter movement. And no matter how much literature I showed them, how many websites, how many articles, I couldn't... Most of them couldn't get past this idea that Black Lives Matter was anti-white, that Black Lives Matter wanted black supremacy. And that's never been the case, any more than it was really the case with Malcolm, even in his most fiery, iconoclastic moments in the late 50s, early 60s as a spokesperson for the Nation of Islam. He's anti-white supremacy and therefore, by the transitive power, often anti-white, but he's never arguing for black supremacy in in terms of how 
white supremacy has been created over the last few centuries in our country. But white people just have this, this block because white supremacy in a hierarchical vision where whiteness is foregrounded and celebrated above and beyond everything else, not just equal to everything else, is the only way they can envision the world. And they think that any challenge to that isn't a challenge to the entire structure of placing one race above the other, but it's a challenge just to who's at the top of the pyramid. I don't know. But I do know a white kid wearing a Malcolm X beanie in a small southern city in the early 1990s faced the most vehement opposition to that outfit choice from other white kids who listened to rap music and hung out with black kids. And so I think it's also a lesson for myself and all my listeners that when we're talking about taking this journey along a spectrum towards anti-racism, and I'm speaking mostly to my white listeners here, we have to be very mindful and careful of who we're on that journey with and how we hold ourselves and those people who we think are like us accountable. Because those white kids denouncing me for wearing a Malcolm X beanie were not the kids wearing camouflage and driving pickup trucks. They were the kids in starter jackets listening to Big Daddy Kane and using the slang of their so-called black friends. Man, we covered a lot of ground again today, like always. Thank you guys for listening. Want to hear from you all, continue to hear from you all, either on social media. You can email me directly at jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. Share your stories, ask questions, challenge my interpretation. If you were in one of these stories, add your two cents, whatever it is. If you don't mind that I share it, I probably will. If you don't want me to, just tell me that and I won't. But I thank you once again for taking this journey with me through the twists and turns of my memory. As I explore what whiteness has meant and does mean to me. And I I wish y'all nothing but the best in your own personal journeys. Love you guys. And I will see you for episode six. Peace.